Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Romans, chapter 3. Romans 3. We have just entered into the second major section of the book of Romans. The first major section dealt with condemnation, whereas this new section deals with justification. Under the heading of condemnation, Paul proved to us that all people apart from Christ are lost, on their way to hell, and therefore need God's righteousness for salvation. And now in this new section, under the heading of justification, Paul tells us how a person acquires God's righteousness. And in the process, he lists ten characteristics of God's righteousness. And uh, let's look at verse 21. But now the righteousness of God, apart from the law, is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ, to all and on all who believe, for there is no difference. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance God had passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So once again in these verses Paul lists 10 characteristics of God's righteousness. Now we've already looked at the first eight. God's righteousness is apart from the law. God's righteousness is revealed in the Old Testament. It's received through faith in Jesus Christ. It's available to all who will believe. It's acquired by justification. It's bestowed freely. It's made possible because of grace. It's accomplished through redemption. And number nine, God's righteousness is satisfied by atoning sacrifice. Uh, as we said last week in verses 24 and 5, Paul mentions four extremely important words that are associated with how a person is made right with God, or in other words, how they are made righteous in his eyes. And those four words are grace, justification, redemption, and propitiation. Now, last week we looked at the first three, which tonight brings us to the fourth grade theological concept Propitiation. The dictionary tells us that propitiation means to appease someone who is angry. If you apply that definition to the concept of biblical redemption, it means that Jesus died on Calvary's cross to appease an angry, red-eyed, fire-breathing God that was about to destroy the world until Jesus appeased him with his own blood. However, that is not the God of the Bible, nor a proper picture of redemption. Turn to 1 John 4, and let's just read verses 9 to 11, and see if that definition stacks up with what Scripture says. 1 John 4, verse 9, In this the love of God was manifested toward us, that God has sent His only begotten Son into the world, that we might live through Him. In this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. 
Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Yeah, it's true that God hates sin because he is infinitely holy and righteous. But it's also true that he loves sinners. I mean, we see that all the way through the Bible, Old and New Testaments, not the least of which is John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in Jesus would not have to perish in hell but would have everlasting life. God so loves, guys. He so loves, not hates, or is angry towards the world of sinners that he gave his only begotten Son to die on Calvary's cross to save us from eternal judgment in hell. Uh, it's interesting, the word propitiation doesn't mean, and we're talking about biblical propitiation, how the Bible talks about it. The word propitiation doesn't mean the appeasing of an angry God, rather it means the location or place where sins are forgiven and God's righteousness is satisfied. What exactly is this place? Well, let's go back to the Old Testament and get a running start on what the New Testament teaches because it starts in the Old Testament. When we looked at the tabernacle in our Exodus study a few years ago, we said that every piece of furniture in it, the menorah, the table of showbread, the golden altar, everything in and about the tabernacle pointed to Jesus in some way. And this was especially true of the mercy seat. The words mercy seat in Hebrews 9.5, and propitiation in Romans 3.25 are the same Greek word, a form of halasmos, which means that Jesus is our mercy seat, our propitiation. In 1 John 2, verse 2, it says, And he himself is the propitiation. He himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. In other words, guys, he is the place where sins are forgiven and where God's righteousness is satisfied. You say, okay, but what exactly does that mean? Well, to fully understand and appreciate what Paul is saying here in Romans 3.25, we need to understand how sin was atoned for and God's righteousness was satisfied under the old covenant, the Mosaic system. When a Jew sinned back then, God had instructed that they were to bring their animal sacrifice to the priest at the tabernacle and later on the temple, where the priest would offer it to God and make atonement for their sin so that their fellowship with God could be restored again. Sin separated them from God. It broke their fellowship with him. We see that throughout the Bible. Uh, probably the most well-known verse is Isaiah 59, verse 2, that your sins have separated me from you. And that is the idea. So when they sinned, they would bring the animal sacrifice to the priest who would offer it there on the altar, and that would atone for their sins and allow them to be reunited with God in fellowship. However, there was always the problem of sins that were never atoned for. Many unknown and or forgotten sins would accumulate throughout the year for which no sacrifice had been made. And so to deal with those sins, God established a national day of atonement called Yom Kippur, which literally means day of covering. This was the day when all unknown sins, sins of ignorance, sins that were forgotten, could be atoned for and forgiven by God, a great day for the liberation of the conscience. You see, the Israelites knew that whatever sins they may have missed throughout the year would now be taken care of on Yom Kippur. The slate would be completely wiped clean, 
at least for a while. Okay. Uh, but Yom Kippur was a time of release and relief, a day devout Jews longed for. Now, on the Day of Atonement, two goats were presented at the door of the tabernacle and then again later the temple. And one of them was chosen by casting lots to be sacrificed as a sin offering. That goat was slain and its blood was taken into the Holy of Holies. Now let me stop there and fill in some of the details about this. Some of this you no doubt already know. It was on this day and this day only that the high priest and only the high priest could enter into to the revered Holy of Holies, into the very presence of God. Now, he didn't do it boldly, as we're told we can do it. In Hebrews, right, we can have bold access into God's throne room because of the blood of Christ. Well, they didn't have that assurance. They couldn't enter in until they had first offered numerous sacrifices for themselves, uh, washed several times ceremonially, changed clothes a few times, and then they would dare enter into the Holy of Holies. And if their life was not right with God in some way, God would strike them dead on the spot. So it was not something they did boldly. They were terrified because they never knew if they really had taken care of all the sins um, that were committed. Now, if they entered the Holy of Holies and God didn't strike them, that was the first good sign. But upon entering the Holy of Holies, the high priest then would stand before the Ark of the Covenant. Now, we've already talked about this, but let me throw it out there for people who are watching online or somebody here who has never heard this before. The Ark of the Covenant was made up of two separate pieces. It's called the Ark, but it was made up of two separate pieces, a lower box and the lid that went on top. The bottom box measured 3 foot 9 inches long by 2 foot 3 inches wide, 2 foot 3 inches high. And originally it held three items. The two tablets, well, I'm counting the two tablets as one item. The two tablets of stone upon which were written the Ten Commandments, a golden pot containing some manna, and then Aaron's rod that had budded in the confrontation with Korah, Abiram, and Dathan. Now the box was covered with gold inside and out and topped with a lid made of solid gold called the mercy seat. On top of the mercy seat were cherubim, plural, means two angels. Cherubs are the highest form of angels, all right? So at the top of the mercy seat, there were two angels, each one kneeling at the end. So you had two angels kneeling at either end, facing each other with their heads bowed down and their wings outstretched, touching uh, almost tip to tip directly above the mercy seat. It was on that mercy seat between the cherubim that God was symbolically understood to dwell. It was his throne, quote unquote, on the earth. Uh, actually, Solomon, when he dedicated the temple, said, God, we know you don't dwell in a house made with hands. We know the heavens of the heavens are your throne, earth is your footstool. But God said that he was going to dwell there between the angels on the mercy seat. It would be his throne on the earth. Now, guys, the lid was called the mercy seat because on the Day of Atonement, the high priest entered the Holy of Holies and sprinkled the blood of the sacrifice upon the mercy seat. And uh, this was intended to atone for all the sins of ignorance that were committed by God's people throughout the year, which then allowed God to show mercy to them because their sins had finally been atoned for, covered. The shed blood of the animal substitute met, temporarily, the righteous demands of holy God. 
Then the high priest put his hands on the head of the other goat and confessed the sins of the people upon it. Then the scapegoat, as God called it in Leviticus 16, was taken out by a young Levite, taken out into the Judean wilderness, over the Mount of Olives, way out into the Judean wilderness. So far, the goat could never find its way back. The idea was that their sins were being carried far away. Maybe the psalmist, I think he probably did, the psalmist in Psalm 103, verse 12, had this in mind when he said, As far as the east is from the west, so hath he removed our transgressions from us. By the way, the Judean wilderness is west of Jerusalem and the temple. Now, during the Old Testament period, the blood of animals could never take away sins. They could only temporarily cover those sins. But God allowed this inferior sacrificial system so that his people could maintain fellowship with him, providing some atonement for their sins until the ultimate sacrifice could be offered. You see, God said to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, the soul that sins shall surely die. Now guys, when Adam and Eve sinned, you know the story. They tried to cover the shame of their nakedness by sewing fig leaves together. Well, God didn't accept that covering. Instead, he killed a couple of animals, innocent animals, and covered them with the skins of those animals. Why? Because fig leaves don't cover very well? No, it was to establish the law that the guilt of man's sin, listen, could never be covered by the works of his own hands. That's religion. Religion. The guilt of man's sin could never be covered by the works of his own hands. It would require a blood sacrifice, the innocent dying in the place of the guilty. Under the Old Covenant, God provided a sacrificial system whereby the blood of animals could be substituted for the guilty person to atone for their sins so that they themselves didn't have to die. But that blood, guys, was never able and was never intended to cleanse or take away the offender's sin permanently. As the writer of the Hebrews explains in Hebrews 10, verse 4, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. And that's why as you study the uh, tabernacle and the temple, you'll notice quickly that there was no seat or chair in either because the priest's work was never finished, so he never sat down. And the reason for that was because, again, the blood of animals could never take away sin. All the blood of animals could do was temporarily cover sins until the next time the person sinned. And then they'd have to bring another sacrifice. Consequently, the priests never sat down because their work was never done until, until Jesus, our great high priest, offered himself for our sins. You know, he was the Lamb of God, whose blood didn't just cover, but completely took away our sins. Remember when John the Baptist introduced him in John 1, verse 29? He said, Behold the Lamb that takes away the sin of the world. That was revolutionary because that was the first time Israel was hearing about this. Atonement from the Hebrew word kafar, kapur, same word, means to cover. The old sacrificial system covered sins. But this lamb who was coming would take away the sins of the world. That was revolutionary. But Jesus didn't just die to cover sins. He died to take our sins completely away once and for all time, which meant his work was done. 
He said it on the cross. John 19, verse 30, he said, it is finished. Turn to Hebrews 1. Talking about Jesus, he said in verse 3, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins on Calvary's cross, he ascended, he was buried. Three days later, he rose. Forty days after that, he ascended back to the Father in heaven, and he what? Sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. But I want you to understand that biblical redemption has always been based on blood sacrifice in both the Old and the New Testaments. I'll give you two classic examples of one from the old, the other from the new. Leviticus 17.11 For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you upon the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes atonement for the soul. And then in Hebrews 9.22 Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. There's no forgiveness. There's, there's no uh, taking away uh, sin without the shedding of the blood of Christ. Um, because we're going to talk about Yom Kippur today, as I was preparing my study yesterday and today, but yesterday I was working on it, and I thought to myself, you know, I'd really like to hear what a rabbi has to say about Yom Kippur, how they feel about it today. So I called a few synagogues in the area and got a hold of a young rabbi was nice enough to talk to me and um, I asked him I said rabbi I said you know um, what, what do the Jewish people today think about Yom Kippur what does it symbolize to you and he said well it's a day that we try to make amends with people we try to ask for forgiveness from those who we have hurt uh, sometimes people come to us who want us to forgive them and if we don't forgive them now we're in sin and uh, there's a lot of good works and forgiveness and so on and so forth. Of course, he said nothing about animal sacrifice. He said nothing about blood. He said nothing about the priesthood, the temple. How could he? Those are all gone. Those are all gone. And I thanked him and hung up. But it reminded me of a conversation I had with a rabbi a few years ago. Uh, we were out at a, a family, uh, I think it was a, a, an amusement park in the area with the kids. And it was a, kind of a warm summer day, and they were inside getting some ice cream. I was sitting outside uh, at a table out there. And at one point I saw what looked like a rabbi walking with a bunch of kids, like a summer camp, Jewish boys. And I knew they were Jewish by the way their hair was styled, and their shirts. Uh, I forget, and the front it was the temple something... Uh, and on the back, they were, it said basically we're waiting for Mashiach, okay, Messiah. And, um, and I only saw it, I was looking at my phone, reading the news, and by the time I saw this group, the rabbi was already way up there. And so I thought, wow, I would have liked to have talked to him. So I looked down on my phone uh, for a little while longer, and all of a sudden, here comes a rabbi coming back my way. And I, hey, hey rabbi, nice enough to walk over. And we got to talking, and very respectful, not combative at all. I'm not, you're not going to win people by, by, you know, going after them. It was very respectful. I wanted, look, let me tell you something. 
If you want an open door into somebody's heart, don't take the dominant position talking down to them like you know everything and you're going to educate them. Because now you're putting them in a subordinate position and pride wells up. But if you put yourself in the subordinate position of a student and elevate them to the place of a teacher, I, ne I need for you to teach me about this. All of a sudden, they feel superior. And that's fine. And he, he had information that I really wanted to hear about. So we got to talk. It was a nice conversation. And I forgot exactly how it led to the uh, sacrificial system. And I said, well, Rabbi, I said, how do you deal with your sins today? Uh, as a people. I said, your scriptures say, I have given you the blood upon the altar, God speaking, to make atonement for the soul. It's the blood that makes atonement for the soul. But you have no temple. You have no priesthood. You have no, no blood offerings. How do you atone for sins? Well, we believe that if we just do all kinds of good works, that that will atone for our sins. And I thanked him for his time. Took a picture with him. I still have it. <laughs> but it's just tragic. You know, I've said this before. Let me say it again. When Jesus hung on the cross, at one point he, uh, he bowed his head, said, It is finished, dismissed his spirit, and the veil of the temple was torn from top to bottom. That veil was, as we said, 12 to 18 inches thick fabric, one layer after another. It was a wall. Of fabric and Jesus said it is finished sin was atoned for the veil of the temple was torn in two top to bottom signifying God tore it and what he was saying to the to the world is open house anyone who comes receives my son has bold access into my presence right they sewed up the veil and went on practicing the Levitical system so 38 years later, God puts an exclamation point on it, and the Romans come in and level the temple. Destroy it. Now there is no more priesthood or temple or sacrifices, right? And this was designed to shift them away from the old covenant to look for the new way God had instituted, which was, of course, Jesus and the new covenant, who said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through me, right? But it's tragic that after all these years, the Jewish people are still locked in that mindset of the Old Covenant. Even though Jeremiah said, God speaking through Jeremiah chapter 31, there's coming a day when I'm going to make a new covenant with the house of Israel. Not like the one I made with you through Moses, you know, the one you broke before he got off the, the, the mount. I'm going to put my spirit upon you, my laws in your heart. I'm going to, you're going to love me from the heart and obey me. But they're still holding on to the old covenant, which is a covenant of works and so on. And we're studying that uh, on, on Sunday mornings quite a bit in Galatians. But guys, the Bible is clear that because of Jesus' death on the cross as payment for the sin of the world, God now offers sinners redemption. Uh, as we looked at last week in the first century Greco-Roman world, redemption always referred, listen, to the price paid to redeem a slave, which meant gold or silver or some other commodity that possessed value. Now, when it came to the redemption of humanity out of the bondage of sin, death, and Satan, well, gold and silver were of no value. 
Turn to 1 Peter chapter 1. Because Peter talks about this. 1 Peter 1.18, Knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like gold or silver, from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as a lamb without blemish and without spot. He was, of course, sinless. Guys, the penal substitutionary death of Christ, in other words, that he suffered in our place, that we might receive redemption and forgiveness for our sins, was the very foundation upon which the gospel is built. Penal substitution. We couldn't pay for our own sins. So another came, the sinless, spotless Lamb of God, who came and died in our place. He was our substitute. Turn to Ephesians 1. And I want to look at verse 7. Paul said, in him, in Jesus, we have redemption through his blood. As one author said, because Jesus paid the price of redemption, he paid our debt. Um, because Jesus paid the price of redemption, it satisfied, it propitiated. That's really what the word means biblically, to satisfy uh, God's righteous requirements, to satisfy his uh, justice, and so on. But because Jesus paid the price of redemption, it propitiated the righteous righteousness and justice of God. That allowed him to show us mercy by releasing us from the wrath and condemnation of God, which we deserved through faith. He goes on, understand, though, that faith was not the propitiation. There's nothing special about faith itself. Faith is simply trust. Even when we talk about salvation, faith doesn't save us. It is the object of our faith, Jesus Christ, who saves us. Faith is the conduit through which salvation flows from the Savior to the sinner. End quote. So back in Ephesians 1, 7, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. Guys, the word forgiveness basically means to send away send away. It is actually a legal term which meant to satisfy a debt, to grant a pardon, but the basic idea was one of forgiving a debt, sending the debt away so that it was no longer held against the person. Guys, in the Jewish mind, all sin was looked upon as a debt owed to God. Jesus even affirmed it uh, in what we call the Lord's Prayer in Matthew 6, but it's really not the Lord's Prayer. He could never have prayed, forgive me my sins. It's the disciples' prayer. They said, teach us to pray. And he gave them a model prayer. And in some of the newer translations, they do say, forgive us our sins. But in the King James, the New King James, the way it's worded is, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Picking up on how the Jewish people felt uh, about a sin, uh, getting it from, from God that uh, all sin was a debt owed to God, which is why they brought God the animal as a payment. Now, remember once again, the word forgiveness basically means to send away. And if you, if you uh, impose this upon the Day of Atonement, you understand how they identified uh, forgiveness with the Day of Atonement. Of course, it was a day of forgiveness, for atonement, but the idea of sending something away is what I'm getting at, right? Forgiveness, to send something away. And this was reflected in the whole ceremony of Yom Kippur. One author reminds us, he said, and I quote, 
Israel's greatest holy day was Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. On that day, the high priest selected two unblemished sacrificial goats. One goat was killed, and his blood was sprinkled on the mercy seat to atone for the people's sins. The high priest placed his hands on the head of the other goat, symbolically laying the sins of the people on the animal. The goat was then taken out deep into the wilderness so far that it could never find its way back. In symbol, the sins of the people went with the goat never to return to them again. Look, as beautiful as that, uh, that enactment was and you know, meaningful to the Jewish people, they knew. They knew that that little enactment of the priest taking the goat and, and um, laying his hands on the animal and confessing the sins of the people upon it, then one of the Levites taking it way out into the wilderness. It was a beautiful symbol, right? My sins are being carried far away. But they knew in their heart that that didn't really carry their sins away. The old Levitical system, the Mosaic system, was a system of covering sins. They knew that. It was built into the very word, kafar, uh, yom kippur, kafar, the co day of covering. They knew that blood of goats and bulls could never really uh, take away sin, but we know what's going on. We know what was all, it was a picture of what only God himself in Christ could do, to take away sins. That through the shedding of his own blood, Jesus Christ actually took the sins of the world upon his own head, as it were, and carried them an infinite distance away so that they would never be remembered anymore. Aren't you glad that God drowns your sins in the sea of forgetfulness and puts up a sign, no fishing allowed? I mean, really, right? How many Christians ignore that sign and are always fishing up their old sins, letting the devil condemn them over them? They're gone. They're under the blood. They've been carried so far away that God no longer remembers them. I mean, God actually can forget stuff? No. He just doesn't remember them in the sense that he's going to actively punish or discipline for those sins. Turn to Colossians 2. You know, guys, what is common knowledge to us? We've been Christians for many years, many of us. Put yourself in the Jewish people's shoes for a minute. You can have bold access into God's presence. First of all, you're not a priest. You're not the high priest. Secondly, the high priest never went in boldly into the presence of God. You're telling me through Jesus we can have bold access? You're telling me that through Jesus, um, you know, all my sins are washed away, never to be remembered again, not just covered temporarily, but dealt with permanently? I mean, these were revolutionary concepts, which are things that we now have known for many years. But in Colossians 2, Verses 13 and 14. Paul said, And you being dead in trespasses, and the uncircumcision of your flesh, talking about our pre-Christ days, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses through Christ, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross." Again, guys, the idea was that Jesus took all of our sins that were on our ledger. Paul makes it a point to tell us that God keeps very meticulous records of every person's life and all the sins they've committed in thought, in word, and in deed. They're all written down. 
And the only way for those sins to be atoned for, to be forgiven, to be wiped away is through the blood of Christ, which means you have to receive Christ as your Lord and Savior, at which time, as we said last week, he writes, Tetelestai, on the bottom of your ledger. Tetelestai is what he said from the cross uh, when he said, It is finished. could be translated paid in full. But he nailed all of our sins to his cross, and we accepted him. Those sins were atoned for. They were washed away. And guys, that's really what Paul means when he says that propitiation, the propitiation of Christ, declares or demonstrates God's righteousness. Now, this is a little tough for me to, to understand where Paul's coming from. Let's try to dig it out a little bit. Um, let me say it again. This is what Paul means when he says that the propitiation of Christ declares or demonstrates God's righteousness. Let's read it in context. Verse 24. Being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith. Well, he's got a lot of theology in here. All right. I mean, he's dropping these words that are so rich with theological meaning for us, all right? and But he's just packing it in, okay? But whom God sent forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness because, listen now, here's the key. In his forbearance, God had passed over the sins. What's he talking about? The Old Testament saints. In his forbearance, hold on to that word, God passed, he passed over the sins that were committed in the Old Testament. Let me finish reading the, the text. God passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. There are people who ask the question. You Christians say Jesus died on the cross 2,000 years ago. All right? But what happened to the 4,000 years before that? How were sins dealt with? How were sins, in your words, atoned for? In other words, how did the Jewish people get saved, forgiven, and go to heaven if the sacrifice had not even been made yet? And this is what Paul is talking about. He's telling us that far from this being an evidence of God's unrighteousness, that he just basically said for the 4,000 years prior to Christ, well, I'm just going to forget that. that. That doesn't count. No, no. Paul is, is making a point that Jesus Christ died not just for the sins of those that were living in those days and up to the present, but also for the sins of all in the Old Testament. That's what he's talking about. God in his forbearance passed over the sins that were previously committed before Christ was crucified. Let me read what one commentator said of, uh, on this subject. He said, and I quote, so the Old Testament period was a time of the forbearance of God. For at least 4,000 years, he held back his judgment on sin. Then in the fullness of time, he sent his son to be the sin bearer. When the Lord Jesus took our sins upon himself, God unleashed the full fury of his righteousness, uh, of his righteous holy wrath on the son of his love. Sin had to be paid for. But the holy judge of all the earth knew that sinners couldn't pay for their sins. And so God the judge stepped from behind the bench and came to earth to be man's savior. He said, it reminds me of a story. Then he launches into this story. 
He said a 17-year-old was arrested for reckless driving in a rural community. As he was brought into court, he was relieved to see that his father was the presiding judge. An hour later, the judge rendered his decision. Your reckless driving, he said, has endangered the people of our community. Consequently, justice must be served. You will either have to pay a $1,000 fine or serve one year in jail. Dad, the boy said, you know I don't have a penny to my name. Young man, said his father, in this court, you will address me as your honor. I am your judge. And down went the gavel as the boy stood incredulous before the bench. The bailiff approached. He was ready to take the boy to jail when the judge stood up and took off his robe and left the bench to stand by his son. Behind the bench, he said, I am your judge, but here beside you I stand as your father. He took a checkbook from his pocket to pay his son's fine. The author said that's precisely what the Lord did for us when he left the bench of heaven to come to earth as Jesus of Nazareth to write the check of redemption, to pay the price of propitiation. It's fabulous. It's perfect. It's beyond comprehension that God would have come up with a plan so beautiful that it confirms both his light and his love without compromising either one. Now, if the young man in the illustration, following his dad's offer to pay his fine, said, Get out of here, Dad. Why did you have to pronounce such harsh judgment in the first place? I'd rather take my chances in jail than to accept charity from you. Well, no one would feel sorry for him. No one would shed a tear on his behalf. So, too, no tears will be shed for those who say, I couldn't care less that God became a man and was slaughtered on the cross for my sins. I've got places to go, things to do, a career to pursue. No one is going to shed a tear for that kind of a person because the price paid on their behalf was offered so lovingly and would have cleansed them so completely, end quote. People say, why, if you believe in a loving God, how can a God of love send people to hell? And my answer is always, he doesn't. People choose to go there. I think it was Spurgeon who said, if you wind up going to hell, you're going to have to step over the beaten, bloody body of Jesus Christ who died on the cross to keep you from hell. But if you're determined enough to get there, you can get there. But then don't blame God because God has fully paid the price by which you might be redeemed and spared that horrible judgment. But you have to receive Christ as your Savior. You know, John 3.16, we all know it. Many people believe that God's love is so incredibly powerful that it's going to forgive all people their sins. Nobody's going to wind up going to hell because God is such a God of love that he's going to, his love will keep people from hell. Well, John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world. And let me just say this. I tell people that that's a beautiful thought, and I've heard it many times over the years. That God is a God of love, and a God of love would never send anyone to hell. His love will, will spare them, save them from that place. And I tell them, look, God's love is an awesome thing, but God's love will not save you from hell. God's love cannot save you. God's love has never saved anybody from hell. All that God's love can do is provide a way by which you may not have to go to hell. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That's his part. The rest is your part. That whoever believes in him should not perish in hell but have everlasting life. God won't force anyone to heaven. Love or no love. His love provided a way by which sinners might be saved. But he's not going to force that 
way on anyone. They have to receive Jesus as their Savior. All right, real quickly, the final characteristic of God's righteousness, number 10, God's righteousness authenticates his character. Now, you have to kind of take what we just said and combine it now with verse 26. I want to go back at least to verse 25. It's a little, maybe this is not as clear as some of the others. But God's righteousness authenticates his character. Romans 3.25, whom God set, set forth as a propitiation, Jesus Christ, by his blood, through faith, to demonstrate his righteousness, because in his forbearance, God had passed over the sins that were previously committed in the Old Testament period before the cross to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Do you see it there? He passed over sins not because he's unrighteous, but actually to demonstrate his righteousness, that his character is unblemished. It's perfect. It's sinless. It's holy. There are those people that would read this or hear me or other pastors preach on this, and they, they would immediately respond to this idea. And it kind of dovetails with what we just said, but trying to make verse 26 a little bit of a standalone, all right? But with regard to this, there are those people who would immediately respond to this idea. I'm quoting it. But how could God do this righteously? A sinless substitute had not been slain. The blood of a perfect sacrifice had not been shed. In a word, Christ had not died. The debt had not been paid. God's righteous claims had not been met. How then could God save believing sinners in the Old Testament period? The answer is that although Christ had not yet died, God knew that he would die, and he saved men on the basis of the still future work of Christ, even as Revelation 13:8 tells us, that Jesus was a lamb slain, listen, from the foundation of the world. I mean, way back before God even created the world, created people who sinned. In the mind of God, Christ was already hanging on Calvary's cross. In the mind of God, the plan of salvation was already in place for all people. The author goes on. Even if Old Testament saints didn't know about Calvary, God knew about it. And he put all the value of Christ's work to their account when they believed God's promise of a coming Savior who would atone for their sins through his sacrifice, thus allowing God to redeem them out of their bondage to sin, Satan, and death. In a very real sense, Old Testament believers were saved on credit. We talked about that. They were saved on the basis of a price still to be paid. They look forward to Calvary. We look back at Calvary, end quote. But you know what? We are locked in time. They looked forward because they were in time. We look back because we're in time. God is outside of time. So God sees all of creation from, you know, Genesis 1, verse 1, all the way through Revelation, what, 22, verse 21. It's all one unfolding story going on in the eyes of God at the same time. He is in the eternal present tense. He doesn't dwell in time. He's outside of time. And that's why he could save people, Old and New Testament, before and after the cross, because in his mind, the cross had already happened. It was a done deal. And Paul is saying, look, and he's talking to a lot of the Jewish people now. 
Well, and to Gentiles too. But he wants uh, to, to show them what's involved in, be, in receiving God's righteousness. The whole world is condemned apart from Christ. He spent the first, what, three chapters talking about that? And now he wants to tell people how they can receive God's righteousness and be saved. Can't do it through your being moral or being religious. It's something that the righteousness has to come from God. And so he wants to, he wants to show them that God is not unrighteous because he forgave people in the Old Testament based on what was coming. That was all part of God's righteousness being displayed. He didn't leave anybody out. I mean, how fair would it be to have Jesus come 4,000 years after a man sitting in the Garden of Eden and say, well, you know, you, you were born a little too early. Sorry. You know, <laughs> tough luck. You know, this is only for people that were in Jesus' day and, and after. No, no, it was righteous for God to save people based on the blood of Christ, even though it hadn't been technically shed in the Old Testament yet. God gave them promises. And in God's eyes, if you received his promises by faith, Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness, right? God saved them based on their faith in his promises that were yet future. Because in the mind of God, it was already done. You understand, right? Now, let me end with this, all right? To wrap this up, the question of the ages is, how can a righteous God justify sinners and still be righteous, still be just? I mean, fallen people, they don't understand the righteousness of God. In their minds, why did Jesus have to die? Why, why, why didn't God just say, look, I, I, let's, let's just forget it. You know, let's just sweep it under the rug, all your sins. Hey, I'm God. I can do whatever I want. But he's, he can't do that because he's a righteous God. So the question is, how can a righteous, holy, just God justify sinners? sinners and still be righteous still be just well the answer is he had to have a basis see god just couldn't as we said last week speak away sins he could speak the universe into existence the physical creation but he couldn't speak the the um, as paul put it the new creation into existence you know we accept christ we are old things pass away all things become new that's what it means to be saved he could speak the universe into existence but he couldn't speak sins away Somebody had to die. They had to be paid for. He had to have a basis. In other words, a sinless, innocent substitute had to die in place of the guilty party or parties. And of course, that substitute was Jesus. One author said, when Jesus suffered the wrath of God on the cross for the sins of the world, he fully met the demands of God's law, his righteousness, and also fully expressed the love of God's heart. Let me end with one last scripture. Why don't you turn to it? Uh, Psalm 85. This is one of those verses that I'm certain many people just read and pass over without really thinking about what is actually being said here. Because Psalm 85.10 embodies the dilemma of human history. The dilemma of human history. Mercy and truth have met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed. People read that and go, well, that's kind of nice. Uh, verse 11, you know, they, you know. But listen, here's the question that this psalm kind of brings up. And notice the words mercy, truth, righteousness, and peace. Those are the key words. How can God show mercy to fallen man 
by not sending him to hell and still be true to his word when he said the soul that sins shall surely die. How can a righteous God ever have or make peace with unrighteous sinners so as to have fellowship with them? That is the dilemma of the universe of all time. Of course, the answer, of course, is Jesus Christ and the cross. He is the place where God's righteousness was satisfied and sin was forgiven. It was all through the blood of the Passover lamb, Jesus Christ. So you have these, these truths, God's uh, righteousness and man's sinfulness and God, this and that, and they intersect. How do they come together? At the cross. Because at the cross, Jesus solved the dilemma of the human race. How can a fallen sinner ever have peace with God? How could God ever show mercy to people that he said would, if they sinned, they would surely die? Because Jesus was the substitute. He took our punishment in his place, and when he died in that cross, his blood redeemed us. Everybody in the world could be redeemed. They could go to heaven. John said it, 1 John 2, verse 2. He died, he was the propitiation for our sins, but not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. Every human being could be forgiven, redeemed, and have a place in heaven someday. God so loved the world, he made it possible for the whole world to be saved. Will the whole world be saved? Of course not. Because many people will not receive Christ as their Savior. They will not accept the payment. They think they're good people. They don't need it. Or maybe they're just not religious. I don't believe God, Satan, heaven, hell. Leave me alone with all that stuff. I'm neutral. I don't care about any of that. Is it that's going to exempt them from the judgment someday? Because they don't want to believe it. So we will leave it there. Um, but next week, God willing, we want to look at verses 27 and 8. And um, there's something that we need to see. Um, we've talked about this numerous times. Many people ask, how do I know I'm really saved? Maybe some of you have wrestled with that. I used to wrestle with it when I was a young Christian. How do I know I'm really saved? And Paul actually gives us what we're going to call the marks of saving faith. And you're going to be shocked because a lot of the things that you think indicate someone has saving faith are not an indication of saving faith. It's going to shock you. We'll talk about that and then talk about what, well, what are the marks of true saving faith? So come on back. God willing, we'll look at that next time. Father, we thank you, Lord, for our Savior, the sinless Lamb of God, who willingly went to Calvary's cross to die for unworthy sinners such as we. We don't deserve the least of your mercies, Lord, but you came down and freely gave your life for us that we might have forgiveness of sins, that our sins might be carried far, far away, never to return, never to be brought up. They're drowned in the sea of forgetfulness, and you remember them no more. Thank you, Lord. Father, we ask that you continue to bless these studies in your word. We ask all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.